0: I hope you all packed a lunch, because it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like 11.20, and we all know I'm a little long-winded. No, I'm just joking. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, what I'm going to do is I'm going to abbreviate the beginning part of my message. You know what I realized when I was actually going over my notes this morning? I realized most oftentimes I never get to all of my notes, and that multiple people always say, can you email me your notes? And if you know my personality, out of sight, out of mind, like once you left in front of my face, I will never remember that you said that again. So no idea who those people are. So when you ever ask or want the notes, you should just email me during the week or more importantly, probably text me <laughs> during the week and then I'll email them to you. So if that, if you're one of those people that there's been periodic, oh, Katya, I see you nodding. She's like, sister. Um just email me, and I'll make sure whatever, they're all dated. So we are going to move kind of quickly. And I realize we have a really di- diverse group here. We have a very, very diverse group. We all also- <laughs> um, say... <laughs> <laughs> yes, in ethnicity, but also spiritually we do, as far as our background, our experiences, our how long we've been walking with the Lord, our perspective on scripture. And you know, revival I'm, I, is a very broad topic. We could spend weeks talking about revival just biblically, forget historically. Biblically, we could spend weeks. And I think I, there's, I don't want to leave anybody here behind. I don't want to like pick up at a certain spot thinking and assuming that we all have um, some foundational understanding. So I'm going to take like five minutes because I want everybody in this place to understand revival is not a new buzzword. Revival is not something that is trendy. Revival is not something that in certain time periods or certain years people are locking onto. Revival isn't something that in the year 2000, I gathered with 400,000 people on the Washington Mall and we prayed and fasted for revival for America. And it's you know, 15 years later, so it's not like that period of time has passed and that window has closed. Revival is not for a specific spe- a sp- season in time or a specific even people group. If you look biblically, and so we're actually just going to start biblically because I want you to understand, I don't want anybody disregarding of a, oh, it's just that fringe J-hop group. They like the word revival or that fringe hilltop group. They've locked on to something that they think is something that's on God's heart. I'm going to run through, and like I said, this is going to be fast. And so it's going to, I'm just going to abbreviate what could take probably 40 minutes. Um, But first and foremost, biblically, we actually see from the Old Testament, and I'm going to give you some of the Hebrew and Greek so you can understand what the Bible actually means when it's talking about revival, which is also um, one and the same with awakening. Revival and awakening can kind of be interchanged. But we actually find in the Old Testament, what we can find is there's personal revival. And there's national revival that had taken place at different times. And when we use the word revival, when I give you these scripture references, it is literally that the Hebrew words that were being used actually has to do with being spiritually aroused and awakened and alert and coming alive. So that's actually the root meaning of the word. But you could actually find Abraham had a personal revival that took place. His heart was awakened to the Spirit of God. He had an encounter, an extraordinary encounter with the Spirit of God. In Genesis 21, uh, Genesis 22. Um, That was a personal revival. Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28. Jacob at at Bethel again in Genesis 32. Um, The revival at Sinai in Exodus 32. Do you realize that the revival that took place under Moses' leadership was actually the first national revival to take place? And you could actually, and I hope we have enough time at the end to get to it, because really the end of my message is a whole breakdown of the revival that took place under Moses and at Sinai, and how there's a cycle that you can find in in God's people, and how literally that cycle is found in every single biblical and historical revival. You can't deviate and you can't move from it. It's found, I actually have... um, this, it's a book called Firefall. It goes through extensive, extensive revival history, and and he actually goes through every single move of God and how you can find the same exact cycle. But I'm going to move on from the revival at Sinai and hope we get back there. Um, Ethniel in Judge, Judges three seven, Ahhud at um, Judges three twelve, Deborah and Barak in Judges four uh, one. J- Jephthah at Judges ten six Samuel in Second Samuel seven two Solomon's dedication. How many of you guys remember? The presence of God broke in at the dedication of the temple. That was the in break. You know, we were praying today and singing today about spirit breakout at the dedication of the temple. The spirit of God broke out. You know what it is? It's that when you move beyond rote and ritual, they were there doing an act and a service before God. They were doing the formality of offering and dedicating something to God. But what happens? His glory broke in. That's revival. It's when you're going about your business and presenting yourself before God and it moves from your act and from what you are doing to initiate to God coming and meeting with his stamp of approval. We find that at Solomon's dedication. Some of you just woke up. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I saw it. I literally saw it. Some people were struggling to stay awake. Whoa! (laughs) Wow! (laughs) No, I did not have too much coffee. I did not have enough, actually. (laughs) Uh, Asa... (laughs) Second Chronicles 15:1. Elisha at Carmel. You want to talk about revival? Read your Bible. Elisha at Carmel. It is outstanding and remarkable what takes place. I know we're not going to get to it at the end, so I'm just going to give you a small little picture of this here. You have, as far as the worship of the God of Baal, they're worshiping the God of Baal. Elisha literally, because he feels so outnumbered, he's at a point and a time in his place where he thinks that he is the only true prophet of God. He thinks there's no one else left. He doesn't. Could you imagine being in that position of literally thinking that you are the only one following God? Being so outnumbered. It's actually said that during that time, that the king did more wickedly than all those that went before him. Could you imagine living in a time in history where it was said that there was more wickedness taking place. And not just on a peer level, but from a governmental level. More wickedly. It was, the, it was such a dark, dark time. And you actually find that Elisha is a man of prayer. And what happens? He challenges the prophets of Baal. They go up to Mount Carmel. And what happens there? It's an extraordinary story. You need to look at it because we don't have time today to go in detail. It's not my message. But it's amazing. You know what happens? The prophets of Baal are doing all of their ritual, all of their things to kind of invoke their God to come. Elisha gets up there and he invokes, like in four or five words, the true living God, to show himself. And what comes? God answers by fire. Fire comes upon his sacrifice. Do you know that from that point, there was a mass repentance that took place? Come on, say the word repentance. You do not have revival without repentance. You might despise that word. You might hate that word. You might think it's religious. You might think it's old school. You might think you graduated from that, but you have to look at biblically and historically revival and repentance are synonymous with one another. Because you know what it is? It's when we become aware of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man because we have no righteousness. Do you want to know something? It is, it is a fact, and you can study it, and we don't have time right now. But those that are the closest to God are the most aware of their sin. So you might think, I am so close to God. I, I love it when I hear people use language like they talk about their spiritual maturity. And when they do it, I'm sitting there thinking, like, you know what? When you really, really are walking with God, some of the most godly men and women that have signs and wonders and miracles, that have true character, that have the fruit of the spirit, they feel like the most weak and the most barren and the most desperate because they have a vision of Jesus. Because you know what? When you see him, we're no longer impressed with ourselves. <laughs> no, really. When you see him, nothing else is really that impressive. So if you think you're mature, <laughs> really you don't have a good vision of him. Because you would realize it's, it says in Revelations, we are blind, we are wretched, and we are poor. That's who we are. But you know what it is is we glory in that. We glory in that position because it do, it reveals our neediness of him. We're needy of him. That's the posture. That when you ever find biblical and historical revivals, when we are needy of him, that is when he comes. When we stop with our all sufficiency, with our all encompassing, that somehow we have it and we look good and we smell good and our organization is working and it's growing. It isn't because in light of the glory of God, it is vanity. Stop being impressed with ourselves. Stop being impressed with our little groups of religion and organization Come on, how, how, when are we going to come to the place that instead of looking from church to church and comparing, ah, no, really, you do it. We all do it. There's comparison. Well, I'm afraid of a church that's alive. A church is dead. You know, people hop from church to church, all of those kind of things. We somehow even compare ourselves with one another. Guess what? The person next to you is not your measuring line. The presence and the power of Jesus Christ is the measuring line that we stand against. And that's liberating. That is not condemning. That is not crippling. That is thrilling. Because you no longer have to compete or compare with anybody else. Because a heart posture before him of humility and of desperation. That's what he desires and that's what pleases him. When we get over ourselves. <laughs> so Elisha at Carmel is actually 1 Kings eighteen one, And what we find there is literally because the God of Elisha shows up. After that point, 450 of the prophets of Baal were executed. Whereas prior to that time, if that had happened or if they had done harm to the prophets of Baal because that was being endorsed as a nation, but do you even, let, I don't even know what that would equate to in our day and in our time as far as the, the false prophets or the, the sources of wickedness in the land basically being, being brought to judgment. That is powerful. How would that even translate in our culture and society? Jonah, Jonah 1.1 one. 1 actually through four, we find the revival that took place that Jonah saw. Isaiah six was um, a personal revival. How many of you guys know Isaiah encountered the presence of a holy God? And what did he say in the presence of a holy God? Woe to me for I am undone. This is Isaiah. He's not who you consider a heathen or a drunkard. He's a prophet. And of his holiness and guess what happens when he sees him it brings him to a place of abandon send me i'll go you lose all self-preservation you lose all the clinging to this life and our status and what we want and our comfort and what do i get out of it come on because that's where most of us are living how does it benefit me i'll serve how does that benefit me What is the end game? What is the end result? How does it profit me? No, when you've encountered him, (laughs) it's no longer about you, it's about him. You've seen such a higher vision, you're ready to lose your life in something much greater. This is a vision of revival. We're in Old Testament. We're not even through the Old Testament yet. Josiah, 2 Kings. How many of you guys know about the 8-year-old that turns a nation upside down? Come on. Because you know what it is? It's not about intellect. It's not about power. It's not about ability. It's about a heart response before God. And an eight year old has it better than most of us that think that we are so well equipped. It's a tender heart. Says yes to God. Will obey no matter what the cost. No self preservation. You know what my son said to me the other night? He was just putting on his jammies, getting ready for bed. And he's like, I really don't want to grow up, mommy. That's what he said. And I'm thinking in my head, that's not right. You're always talking about when I'm 8, when I'm 10, when I'm... And when he said it, I like looked at him and I said, why, buddy? He goes, children follow Jesus so much better. And I just looked at him and I said, but it never has to change. It never has to change. Christ calls us all to be childlike. And I... Obviously began my lesson there. (laughs) Under Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Ezra 3.1. There was a second revival under Zerubbabel. Uh, First it was a regional and then a national revival. Um, Ezra 6.13. And then Ezra and Nehemiah. It was a national revival. Um, Nehemiah 8.1. Okay, let's move to the New Testament really quickly here. How are we on time? (laughs) John the Baptist, how many of you guys know? John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not a real popular message. Do you want to know what, what lets you know that it was a true move of God, that God was stirring the hearts of people? Here's a dude that's clothed in fur, eating locusts and honey, dwelling in the wilderness. And the masses are coming out to hear him. He did not have a great marketing scheme. He wasn't promoting himself. He wasn't displaying his greatness and his persona and all of his charisma all over the internet. Come on, I know, know, we all say, it's a different time, it's a different era. I'm not opposed to the internet. We have a Facebook page for Hilltop. We're doing it. We are. I'm not like bashing it. But you know what? There's something beyond that. There's something beyond how you can portray yourself and how you can create an image of yourself that you want to present to then draw people there's something that happens when the Spirit of God puts, a, puts a, f- a spotlight on you. He puts a spotlight on that ministry or on that people. Because you know what he says? He begins, you know, we actually can find this. Whitfield at the Boston Commons. How do you think the word spread that Whitfield was going to be preaching at the Boston Commons? Not only did it spread quickly, but hundreds of thousands coming to the Boston Commons. You know what's crazy? with all of our modes of communication, all of our email databases, all of our social media and parasites, Periscope, whatever the heck that is. I don't know. (laughs) Something. Video. Something's happening there. Insta Insta stuff. You know, it's all (laughs) clueless. With all of that that we do, the irony is we still could not gather hundreds of thousands to the Boston Common. What is that? What is that? You know why? Because we have people, the masses are busy and distracted, and they don't really care. They're not hungry. They're not thirsty. We've fed the Christian church the lie that you are all sufficient. You have enough. You are enough. We we've actually preached messages that have deadened spiritual hunger instead of giving people a high vision of what it is when the Spirit of God breaks in, of what it looks like biblically when he shows up. What does it look like when he shows up? Not the given speaker for the hour, not the given band that we all want to go see, but when he breaks in, you want to know what happens? Everyone is on their face. Because you know what? No flesh glories in his presence. We don't all walk away going, oh, no, she was a good speaker. She had a lot of fire. We walk away actually. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing it to myself. I mean, it's kind of like. But we walk away with a heart that has been marked, a life that has been changed. And you know what? An appetite for the glory of God. Come on. Who has an appetite for the glory of God? Because you know what happens then? Nothing else will satisfy you. You can kind of busy yourself in little things and get distracted for a little while, but you know what ends up happening is that gnawing, aching, frustrating (laughs) hunger inside of you goes, this isn't it. This isn't it. I was made for something way more. There's way more of the presence of God available. You know, my husband and I kind of have this little joke between us, because if you haven't figured out, both of him, him and I both have really intense personalities, and so within our home, <laughs> within our home when frustration levels are running high, we can very easily diagnose our frustration has nothing to do with each other. Nothing to do with each other. There's things that I'm aching for and yearning for and longing for that are so far beyond what we are living and seeing right now. There's things that he's aching and, and longing and dreaming for and that's that place of channeling that in the place of prayer. It's that place of contending in the place of prayer. You know, I would rather kind of be on the ride of contending in prayer for the inbreak of God's spirit and remain in that place of hunger, which is slightly frustrating. There is frustration there. There's agitation. I would rather live in that place being fully alive and longing for something more than settle in dry, barren religion. And die a death in that place and no longer ache. You know what? The ache inside of you lets you know that you're spiritually alive. It's nothing to despise. I've come to the place in my life that when I have that ache and that yearning, instead of kind of thinking, how do I get out of this? What do I do to relieve it? I've come to the place of saying, this is the gift of hunger. And it's the testimony and the witness of the spirit of God in my life. I rejoice. I, I rejoice in your activity in my life. Increase it, Jesus. You know what? Because we need to become more and more uncomfortable until it brings us to a place that we posture our lives that you, you Allegra, you Shalita, all of you, I don't want to point one, but all of you become people that through your life we can see the inbreak of the kingdom. Because you want to know something? If you even look at biblical history and revival history, it was not a given or chosen or selected person. It was the person that responded. It was the person that responded. Because you know what? All of us feel the spirit of God stirring. All of us feel, and you have a choice on what you do with it. You have a choice whether you deny it, whether you reject it, or whether you avail yourself to it. Whether you respond to it, and it increases in your life. Let me just quickly run through, you know what, we actually don't have time, because if I go through all the New Testament ones, oh, next, next Sunday, we have worship night next Sunday. Okay, let's move on now. Okay, I'm going to really quickly, because I'm not even on page one yet, um, I'm going to really quickly, <laughs> I told you, I hope you packed a lunch, um, I'm going to really quickly just go through the Hebrew words, so that where we went through in the Old Testament, that these places that are um, signs of awakening and signs of revival. In the Old Testament, one of the Hebrew words literally means to change or replace, to move from one place to another. The Hebrew word actually has this essence to it. It's as a military term that depicts a person that is surrounded by hostile forces. The imagery is a person that is surrounded and that his situation has been altered by the resources of God. That's an, that's an image of what revival is. Somebody that is surrounded by hostile forces. But the entire situation changes because God breaks in. He alters your situation even when you can't alter it yourself. How many of you guys feel like you're surrounded by hostile forces? For some of you, that might be external things. For some of you, that might actually be internal things that you feel like are warring against your soul. Guess what? You're in need of revival. And revival is your answer because it's when God delivers you. If I, There's one thing I'm praying for when we see this next move of God. It's a delivering anointing. It's for people to be delivered from addiction. If you're here this place, and you are addicted to something. And what does that mean? It means if you're doing it against your own will, meaning your mind says this is not healthy, this is not good, this does not release life. The question is, does it release life and strength? Does it draw you closer to him? That is the measuring line. And if you participate, even when you know it is harmful, that means you have an addiction. I don't care if it only happens once a month. It's true. I know cocaine addicts, that it's only like once every two months. They just need just something, just something, just need a fix. I mean, they're not living on the streets, they're functioning, they have jobs. That is an addiction. I don't care if you can go spans of time and it's not taking place. It is something that has a hold on your soul that Jesus says, I want to set you free. I want you a slave to Nothing nothing to rule over you for you to be in subjection to anything but the spirit of god so this is a military term the second one literally means life or alive to come alive and enjoy rich and full life to remain healthy god wants you spiritually healthy he wants your spirit man healthy Revival is living in obedience to God. It can also mean a cure from disease. From this standpoint, revival is the cure to your spiritual disease. The last one literally means to become new, to renew, to rejuvenate and restore. Without awakening, people are surrounded by hostile forces. In awakening, they are delivered. Without awakening, they live in spiritual inertia. In awakening, they live in spiritual power. Without awakening, they are spiritually sick. In awakening, they are spiritually cured. Without awakening, they live in disobedience to God. In awakening, they live in obedience to God. Awakening is the spiritual change that alters your Christian living. The New Testament word for, words for revival number one is the renewing of your mind. You guys all understand this out of Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind it literally means it means you think completely differently ha huh? how many of you continually almost want your mind to come into agreement with how this world system you should look at this world system and think that is insane because you know what when it's according to the kingdom of god read Matthew 5 His kingdom is contrary to the kingdoms of this world. It does not make sense to our carnal mind. And we need to be renewed. When we are revived, our mind comes into agreement with his thoughts and thinking. Which basically means your thoughts and thinkings will be opposed and contrary to the systems of this world. He reinforced... Oh, this is actually good. Um, (laughs) Sorry. God... (laughs) Sorry. When the mind has become unfocused digressed from God's intended direction and cluttered with earthly desires. Revival is God's process by which he refocuses the mind upon kingdom priorities. How many of you guys need your mind refocused upon kingdom priorities? How many of you guys are a little cluttered, a little distracted? Your mind's always kind of full of really, really meaningless information. Just low, just constantly in lowly places. And When your mind gets set free, you, you think clearly. You're refocused. You can hear clearly. To awaken, to to rise, to awaken from sleep, to wake up and stand to our responsibilities in Christ. Get up, arouse from sleep, to change your location. A believer that has gone to sleep on God and God wakes up that believer. That's the second understanding of awaken. The last one is resurrection, to raise up, to get up, to rise. When applied to salvation, it means resurrection from spiritual death, raised from spiritual sleep to spiritual awakeness. This is what God desires for us. Not in certain times and in ter- certain seasons, and as you can see all throughout the Old and the New Testament, it happened periodically. Not only periodically, I'm actually going to give you guys some of the modern history, just even in the U.S., of the four revivals, and sometimes it would only be like a 15-year span. Do you know between the first and the second great awakening, there's only like a 15-year span where things went into a lull, and then it was stirred back up again. There's six types of revival that we'll look at. Number one is personal revival, which is real and which is needed. We kind of have to start there. Number two is institutional revival. Number three, which can take place at, it can be something that's almost localized to, you know, when Liberty University experienced a revival, there's, there's universities, high schools, you know, places, even prisons. How many of you guys know about the prison? Where is that? In, is that in Arizona? Where's that prison? That extraordinary, where is it? Huh? Wherever it is. But there's the prison where they're not only getting saved, but these people are having true awakening and revival. They're becoming ministers of the gospel in the prison. I mean, that's a sovereign move of God. So there's institutional revivals that take place. You can find this biblically and historically. There's regional revivals. There's specialized revivals. A specialized revival is what would be considered the Jesus movement. It was largely youth. It was a youth revival that took place. It was the youth being awakened and revived. It wasn't something on a national scale. It wasn't even something on a statewide scale. It was youth that were being revived and awakened at that time. And then lastly, there's global revival, which we actually saw this in 1901 through 1910. It was like about a a nine-year span. Um, And we'll look a little bit more closely at the global revival later. So, what does revival look like? Edwin Orr says that when the presence of God is experienced in powerful manifestations of his Holy Spirit. When the presence of God, my definition of revival, it's when we love the presence of God more than our sin. See, a lot of the doctrines that have been formed in our generation are to somehow buffer us and insulate us that it's okay to live in sin. Why would we ever adopt a doctrine? that keeps us bound in something that hinders life and hinders strength and is crippling. I mean, you, you really have to look at, in our generation, some of the theology that has been adopted and received and look at the effects of it upon our life and upon a generation as a whole. So... We looked at Moses, Elisha, New Testament. I'm going to skip ahead because I didn't go through all through them. In the book of Acts, we saw that 3,000 were added to the church in one day. The first greatest awakening, this is actually what was said, that one out of seven people in New England was converted. One out of seven people. And we're talking like new converts. Under the awakening, that's what was taking place. Is new converts taking place. Under the Welsh revival, 100,000 converts came in. And what we're going to look at specifically right now is that God does not move apart from man. In every move of God, there are individuals or groups that are instrumental in releasing God's purposes. I know oftentimes it's very popular for us to think that God is just sovereign. He's going to like show up in a cloud wherever he wants. He just like hovers and he moves and then that's where he just moves into those places. You look at biblically... Every single revival that took place, there was a man or a woman that was instrumental in being used to release the purposes of God. You look at historically, you think about it. First Great Awakening, who do you think about? Who do you think about? You think about Jonathan Edwards. How many of you guys know Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, would not be popular nowadays. He preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Ha! Ah! I've read it. I don't really even understand it. He was a brilliant man. He's an astounding theologian. But he preaches a message, and the fear of God comes over the congregation. Do you know what happened from that point? Is all throughout New England. It spread. It was massive conviction and repentance from sin that took place. I'm going to look at the marks all of these men and women. I'm going to try to move through these in five minutes and close out. All of these men, men and women had certain marks that were the same or in common. And it's consistent. You cannot find one of them that did not possess this. Number one, they had, I want you to say the word, they had a burden. A burden. It was specifically for revival, but it was a burden. See, none of us want a burden, do we? We're all trying to like get free and get loose and be set free, find our moment of leisure our downtime, our place where we don't have to be concerned about anything. Carefree. Retire at 30. You know, I actually said to Daryl, I was like, I feel like our generation, like the goal is to be on a constant vacation. Like I can need a vacation and I need another vacation. And I just came off that I need a vacation from that vacation because that just didn't work out the way I thought it would. You know, vacation, vacation, vacation. We're like forever looking for that, that ease of our soul. And you know the extraordinary thing is these men and women of God that had a burden for revival, it did not wear them out, (laughs) did not burn them out. You know why? Because they were in partnership and friendship with God. There was a place of life that they were experiencing because of partnering with the spirit of God. I'm going to read this this to you very quickly. True spiritual pioneers are the embodiment of urgency and zeal. They recognize their eternal responsibility for their own generation. The apostle of of faith, George Mueller, once said, My business is that with all my might to serve my own generation. In doing so, I shall best serve the next generation, should the Lord tarry. I have but one life to live on earth, and this one life is but a brief life for sowing in comparison with the eternity of reaping. General Booth conveyed the same thought with the following lines, Your days at the most cannot be very long. So use them to the best of your ability for the glory of God and the benefit of your generation. Catherine Booth, the mother of the Salvation Army, daily charged her nine children with something similar. You are not here in the world for yourself. You have been sent here for others. The world is waiting for you. More than once, I heard the late Leonard Rivenhill predict that God was going to raise up a new generation to bring the fires of revival to the sin-sick world. The late Keith Green echoed these same urgent sentiments in his final days. He repeatedly and unsettled many of us with the following words. This generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls upon the earth. Have you been awakened to your eternal and personal responsibility for this generation? First and foremost, there was a burden. See, some of us actually have to come to a place that we don't despise a burden for revival where we don't think, well, I just kind of want to live my life the way that I want my life of ease. So what happens? You die, and it's kind of like on your gravestone, you know, got to work three days a week and have four-day weekends, success, (laughs) earned 10 degrees, did nothing with them, success, I mean, seriously, what does your gravestone say? What is the sum total of our life? How about they poured it all out for Jesus Christ with no reservation? I don't care what that looks like. I don't care if that's with the sick and the dying. I don't care if that's with children. I don't care if that's overseas. I don't care if that's in Boston for university students, but it's pouring your life out for something greater than yourself. Get over yourself. I don't mean to be rude. I don't mean to be harsh. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is utter vanity for us to live for our own comfort and for our own ease. They were awakened, ha to the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. In the Hybrides' awakening in 1949, several months of prayer, there were several months of prayer that were taking place. All of these people were just crying out for God to visit them. And during a time of prayer, a young deacon rose in the meeting, and he just read out loud Psalm 24, "'Who may ascend the hill of the Lord?' And who may stand in his holy place but he that has clean hands and a pure heart? After he read the scripture, he paused and he closed his Bible. And these were his exact words. He said, it seems to me so much humbug to be waiting and to be praying when we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Once he said it, before he even said his last word, he began to weep. And this is all that he said before God. He said, Oh God, are my hands clean? And is my heart pure? Instead of letting it be external or about the need of the world, he basically became to the place where he himself, before a congregation of people, he asked God, Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And before he ever said his last words, he fell to the ground. And it wasn't like him voluntarily doing that. He went into a trance. He was taken into a trance. And you know what happened from that point? The Hebrides revival broke out. From one man basically saying, I'm not content to just read the passage of Scripture. I'm not content to just put the theory or the philosophy out there. I want it in living reality. What, the word he used, all the humbug. Humbug. While the humbug were waiting and praying. I mean, what if every single one of us began to take the posture daily God, are my hands clean before you? Is my heart pure before you? There's no condemnation in that. It's because He wants to make us clean. He doesn't want us living in shame and in condemnation and religious works. We also find, and we actually see this in the Hebrides revival as far as prayer preceding, E.M. E. Bound said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better or new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not th- flow through methods, but he flows through men. He does not anoint plans, but he anoints men. David Brainerd, this is actually, for those of you that don't know, that he was an intercessor here for the Native Americans in New England. This is actually what he said. He says, I poured out my soul before God, that God should be known as God to the ends of the earth. This man, David David Brainerd, he was actually known for just being out in the snow in the middle of the wilderness, and you could hear his weeping and his lamenting and his mourning for a visitation, and the Native Americans did experience a mighty move of God because of David Brainerd's life. But his pouring out of soul, that's a graphic and intense thing to say. The pouring out of my soul was so that God would be known as God to the ends of the earth. How about we make that our life vision? The pouring out of our souls that God would be known as God. He spent endless hours at times on his knees in the snow in prayer. Evan Roberts, this is what Evan Roberts wrote. For 10 or 11 years, I have prayed for revival. I would sit up all night long reading and talking and meditating about revivals. Day and night, without ceasing, Evan Roberts prayed, he wept, and he, he sighed for a great spiritual awakening. He began to earnestly pray for revival at the age of 15. He remained steadfast in prayer for 11 long years, thus leading to an encounter with God. As a young man, he spent hours praying in his room until once his landlady came, afraid of him, and asked him to leave. You know, Evan <laughs> Evan Roberts, for those of you that don't know, this is, he's as far as the Wales revival that took place. And they basically, they had a small meeting. wasn't a big meeting, but the prayer that they, that they grabbed a hold on, that they felt like the Holy Spirit was highlighting that day, was God, bend me. God, bend me. That's I mean, it's such a simple prayer. I mean, it's interesting because when you read about any of these men or women, you can kind of think, okay, like, okay, let's get in the prayer room and let's all just pray, God bend me. <laughs> like, you know, it's kinda like, well, what are you gonna do? What's the catchphrase? You know what it is? It's hearing what he's saying, it's sensing his spirit and responding. Instead of doing it our own way or creating our own, you know, mechanism or our own, uh, you know, posture for how we want to do it, it's understanding and hearing what he's doing and responding in participation with that. I had the opportunity um, several years ago to go to Heronhut, Germany, where the 24 hours of prayer was sustained for 100 years. And you know, there's a watchtower there. I mean, two by two, they prayed for 100 years. It's amazing. And then you can see down the street where actually where the community lived. It was a bunch of 20-year-olds or whatever. Well, we went into the church. And if you go to the J-Hop bathroom, that's awkward, whatever. But the J-Hop bathroom over the toilet, there's a picture of the church. It's a yellow church. (laughs) Um, It's actually the church where the outpouring began that marked the Moravians. And when you go there, you actually read the story that took place. And you know what it was? They were all going about business as usual, doing church every Sunday, just like they always did. They were a Christian community. They all went to church. And on the road to church... One of the men, when he was walking there, he was reminded of the scripture that if you know that a brother has offense in his heart against you, go to him. And he went because there was some kind of an issue in his heart with one of the other guys in the community. He went and before he went to go take communion, he had like this nagging in his heart, like, oh, because he knew God spoke to him. He knew God spoke to his heart and was convicting his heart. And you know what he did? Instead of going to take communion, he went to that other brother. And he basically acknowledged, he said, I know that there is an issue between us. They repented, they made it right. That was the beginning of mass repentance that broke out there in Herrenhut, Germany. Do you know that not only was that prayer meeting sustained for 100 years, but missionaries, we are the fruit. The awakening that took place in New England was the fruit of the Moravians. It's astounding. You know what it is? It was one man being prompted by the Spirit of God in responding. How many of us, when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that detail in our life, I mean, I know I read that story years ago and remember sitting in service like, who could I possibly repent to? Like... (laughs) You know, like really like searching my heart. Like, is there anybody I'm annoyed with? Like, you know, like somebody I just got to go make, you know, you're trying to like work it up. Like, I'll do it. I'll do it. (laughs) But you know what it is? It's not a specific thing. As you see with all of these moves of God, number one, it was in partnership with a man or with a a woman. God didn't come and break in. He broke in through an individual life. And it was a life that was responsive and obedient. And you know what you can find with all of these lives? They came to the place where they weren't living for self-preservation. It wasn't like how I look, what's my image, what's everybody going to think of me. You know, all of those things that we're trying to preserve. It was, I am desperate to obey God and to be pleasing in his sight. I want right standing with God no matter what. What if we lived our lives of wanting right standing with God no matter what? We would become people possessed by the spirit of God. When that's all that we care about, I have to close out now. I'm way over time. So we were going to talk about the fire of God. We were actually going to go through four more points of the characteristics of men and women. But we're going to close out there. And I want to do two things. I want to pray, number one, for anybody that's here that you just, you recognize and you identify, I'm in need of awakening. I'm in need of spiritual awakening. There is, I'm in need of awakening. There's no shame in that game. It's the acknowledgement of it. But I also, I'm I'm praying something very specific for our community today. I didn't get to go into all of the points, but I'm praying something very specific for our community. I'm praying that there's people that are captured with a vision. A vision not just for revival, get revival for yourself. Cultivate the fire of God inwardly. But a vision of revival on a, not just a city scale, but a global scale once again. And do you know what that means? We didn't didn't go into all of it, but Moses was literally in the wilderness for 40 years. He was called and raised as a deliverer. He was born to be a deliverer. He's in the wilderness for 40 years when he encounters the burning bush. He encounters the burning bush. He turns aside to the burning bush. He takes off his shoes. That's when the Spirit of God begins to give him a charge. I'm not saying that revival is going to come out of your life tomorrow. You could be on a 40-year journey like Moses. That's insane, right? In the wilderness, there was a preparation that was taking place in his life so that he could be used as a deliverer. So I'm not saying it's going to happen quickly, but I'm saying people that lock on with a life vision of saying, I am not living for my own gain or for my own comfort. I have a vision for the inbreak of the glory of God in my generation. You know, I'm going to say something. I started praying and I started fasting as a very young person. And I can say that there's seasons of my life, whether it's through discouragement or distraction or busyness or whatever, that there's lack of focus. But all I know that there is one thing that my heart and my spirit always go back to. There's one life calling. There's one reason for living. It's the inbreak of the glory of God in my generation. It's all I want to see. I don't care what size my house is. You know, I actually, I mean, it sounds comical. I couldn't find a shoe this morning. And as I was like, you know, going through it, running late, had a thousand things to do, I literally said out loud, someday I'm going to have a house big enough. All my shoes can be in one spot. Because if you know, I live in a really small house and all my shoes aren't in one spot. When I said it, I, I laughed out loud. I went, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what I'm living for. Have all my shoes in one spot. But you know what? That's the essence of our American mindset. Your convenience. What is the end goal? When you're getting up in the morning, when you're making your decisions on how you're prioritizing your time, who you're spending your time with, where you're sowing your life, all of those things, what is the end goal? And I want to challenge our community of people that we would have a vision for something far greater, even than little organizations and little ministries and you know it's not just about a prayer room over there and trying to get a group of people to pray and musicians it's much bigger it's Boston fulfilling its right calling its rightful inheritance to be a city set upon a hill and delight to all peoples that the glory of God would be exported in mass from Boston to the nations of the earth that's what Boston was intended to be and so I want to pray for anybody that even today and it's okay if it's not you. There is no shame in that. But for you today saying, I, number one, either have my heart set upon that vision, and that's all I'm vision, living for. Or two, you're saying, I want to consecrate my life to that pers- purpose. It might be a 40-year journey, but I give myself to that continually and endlessly. And I want you to respond. We're going to pray for you together.
1: Go ahead. I don't want to put a damper on things, um, but Will brought it to my attention. Listen, uh, next Sunday... We're not able to meet here in the morning uh, like we didn't announce that. And so, uh, listen, I know that everybody will respond to this altar call, although I think you're insane if you don't. I'm just joking. You're just a little crazy. Um, So I hope this altar is flooded. I in no way want to dampen what I feel as though God is doing now. But I would really, really uh, be bummed if you came here next Sunday and we weren't here uh, so we're uh, because of hotel policy and uh, us not being able to use this room we are having another worship night 6:30 30 um, here uh, we're going to continue with the service but we have to be flexible unfortunately we didn't have a lot of time of prep on this one because our contract ends with the hotel in september so they pulled the fast one and said hey you you end in september so Um, you can't use it October 4th unless you want to use it at night. So at night, we're meeting here, 6.30. Don't come at 10 a.m. We're meeting here for a night of worship, and maybe Bethany can continue this conversation.
0: Um, But we're just going to go ahead and close out with a word of prayer. So if that's you, let's respond to the Lord and just kind of make an altar before him together. God, we come before you this morning, God, as we have been discussing revival for these past four weeks And God, we say as a community of people, God, we know